first crowdfunding project on record is actually the base of the Statue of Liberty. Hmm. Pulitzer went uh, to the New York World at that time, the newspaper, and said, we need the equivalent today of $60 million to create the base of the Statue of Liberty, otherwise it's gonna sit here in the Hudson. And within days, he had reached that money because he offered something very simple in return to people. They will have their name inscribed on the base of the Statue of Liberty. And it's true, their names are inscribed. People want ownership. They love to say they own something and they're a part of it. And that's the first history. And that's the same today, that same feeling. Hey, everybody. Before we get started, I want to tell you about the sponsor for this week's episode. AB Jets is a great story and great company. I'm not exactly flying around on private jets during this stage of my life. But if I were, I'd be calling AB Jets. They're one of the safest private air companies in the world. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. AB Jets is one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States with nonstop access to most destinations around the U.S. Efficient, clean, and easy to work with, AB Jets is an experience that gets you where you need to go on time and with no hassle. Go to abjets.com for more information and book your trip today or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S. This podcast is also sponsored by My Story. Have you ever thought about what if you could have your own audio and video interview for someone you love to keep and share for generations to come. What better way to keep and remember the life and story of someone you love than your loved one's own interview in their own voice? This is the perfect way to make sure your loved one's story stays with their descendants for future generations to come. Go to mystorytold.org to learn more. Again, that's mystorytold.org to learn more. Now we're going to get back to the show. My guest today is Adam Kaufman. Adam is the co-founder of ArborCrowd. ArborCrowd is the only commercial real estate crowdfunding platform backed by a publicly traded mortgage REIT, Arbor Realty Trust. You may be wondering, what's crowdfunding and why would I want to have an interview on real estate investing? Well, crowdfunding is a new way to offer investment opportunities to people that previously did not have access. These investments were once only accessible to institutional investors, and now they're not. Because of the Kaufman family's rich history in real estate, I thought this would be a valuable episode on a new way of investing rooted in decades of experience. I had a great time with Adam on this interview, and this is a great conversation where you will hear why things have changed and how they are giving people a chance to have equity where these deals used to be off limits. The lessons learned in 2008 crisis and why their experience and processes set them apart today. What's the history of crowdfunding? Did you know that the Statue of Liberty was the first crowdfunding project on record? Building this company from scratch and all the lessons learned along the way, plus much more. Please enjoy this week's episode with Adam Kaufman. Adam, great to see you, man. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here today. 
Yeah, man. Been looking forward to it. I'm curious, you know, we got people that listen to this around the country in different parts of the world, but what's Manhattan been like for you before this most recent variant this past summer and going into the fall? It's interesting. This summer to last summer, you know, it was a zombie town last summer, I would say, going into it. Uh, and that's 12 months ago, more for 15 months ago. I think the city numbers in and of itself had about 30% occupancy. Um, now, things were really coming back strongly. Uh, you see for the first time around this Thanksgiving, a lot of the restrictions on international travel were lifted. A lot of people come to the U.S. to do their holiday shopping. And it was funny story. I actually was uh, in the village um, outside of a store, and I noticed there was a lot of, uh, a lot of Norwegian people in the store. Yeah. And I asked one of them, I said, you know, you guys obviously just got here, you know, the travel restrictions were lifted and you're in here. And they go, yeah, we don't have this ability in Norway to holiday <laughs> shop like this. We don't have these stores. We come in every single year. Norwegians flock during this week. And you notice the difference now. You really, really do. Um, people are back. The energy is vibrant. It's hard to get reservations. And I think the only place that you're not seeing the same degree is Midtown, office space. I think a lot has changed in the pandemic. Obviously, flexible work from home mentalities exist, and people aren't rushing back to the offices yet. But with that said, there's not many people that are reducing their footprints, not many companies. So I think people in general are expecting people to come back, but there will be somewhat of an adjustment. And I think a, a, a moderated work week schedule from a work from home hybrid uh, will exist in the future for many professions. What'd y'all do? Just curious. How'd y'all play it? I mean, flexibility or come back or... What's that looked like for y'all? We were pretty flexible overall. And I, and I made that judgment. Obviously, you know, people have special circumstances and you take that into consideration, of course. Um, but my people worked great from home. They really, they really accomplished a lot. We hired up during this time period. Uh, we built out areas of our business. We wanted to make sure we weren't sitting on our hands at all. Um, and we accomplished it successfully. And people came on board that are new employees and I was nervous. How are we going to onboard them? How are they going to be a part of our culture? What's the face, a lack of FaceTime? What, what are meetings going to be like? You can't replace a whiteboard. You can't, you just can't. And it's, thank God, been going very well for us. But I will say with that, I, I do anticipate a work from, uh, you know, coming back to the office pretty soon because the collaboration is, is definitely important, very important. I mean, do you think you'll keep it, you know, maybe two, three in? Yeah, I think we'll go back definitely three, four days a week with a flex day here and there. And again, depending on circumstance and depending on how, how it evolves productivity-wise. Yeah. What was that like for you? And I, I know you're COO and you launched this in 2016, but to kind of be thrusted into this and, you know, with the pandemic and you're obviously very well funded in what you're doing. And, you know, we haven't gotten there completely yet, but I know a lot of ambition. What was that like for you personally, just kind of leading through this? You know, it was interesting because especially in the beginning, um, the first month or two, we really didn't know how long this was going to last. I think we're still surprised by how long it's lasting. Um, or maybe the, the scientists involved probably less, <laughs> so, but, but I am, I, and I don't have that knowledge. And it was, it was interesting because, you know, it's one thing to plan for, uh, you know, when it happened in March and you, you say, oh, maybe it's a month. And you're saying, oh, maybe things will go back to normal a little bit in June. And then all of a sudden you're two years later, almost. It, it was hard to plan for. So there's a lot of adjustment on the spot. Um, we made sure from a cultural standpoint to do regular, you know, team 
groups uh, getting together. Send, I said, we did a lot of like, for example, we just, I just did something at play on real estate. We send gingerbread houses. We're getting all together and there's a break off group building, you know, oh, nice. developing, we call it, but that's, you know, part of our product line. So there, we do a lot of things like that, which had a nice, has a really nice effect in the group. And it was really just, we use Microsoft Teams, it was onboarding, it was collaboration. And for me personally, it was learning how to trust people more. Um, and if you have good people and you can learn to trust them, it's, it's, it's better off. And people were challenged to, you know, really perform in their own ways, on their own uh, schedules and adapt. And, and, and I feel very grateful and happy that, that my team did so successfully. Yeah. Just curious. I know your family has a rich history in real estate out in New York, but obviously all over the country. Was there a sense of benefit, not from a from an ease standpoint, but just from a sense of, you know, adaptation or learning from experience? Was there a sense of value or benefit that you felt to where when you did, there was kind of a deep well to go to at times to really to try to help you maintain the pace, the tempo, in the way you wanted to lead when a lot of people were really thrown off. I'm curious, is there anything that could be learned from there? There was a tremendous wealth of knowledge that, you know, I had the privilege of being exposed to, to learn how to adapt to a crisis. Fortunately for the real estate community, certain trends were accelerated, but everyone did fairly well. And it's a very low interest rate environment. So the activity is just enormous and the capital is just so great on the sidelines right now. But I learned a lot from especially 2008, 2009 recovery, beginning recovery, and a lot of the practices that were put in place by learning from that, especially on the, our, from Arbor Realty Trust perspective, the mortgage REIT really performed and proved very thorough here. And those practices were um, built on those learnings. So it's doing business with repeat customers who you understand and know have enough in their pockets for things to go bad and you know that they've performed as well. So they don't have shady business plans or things that can't be accomplished. And in a very competitive tight arena where we are today, people are doing a lot to win business and they're sacrificing on and overlooking some fundamentals that when times are tough really are important. We focus on the right asset class, multifamily, continues to be the most resilient, workforce housing in particular, everybody needs a place to live. It's not luxury housing. It's not the first to go if people get their shirts taken off. And those were learning lessons that I inherited and learned and watched and created and put in as our, our business. So what you're saying is right there, you've been accustomed to run things in a very disciplined manner and run things in a very efficient manner. And you've been able to lean in on decades and decades of experience and performance. So when kind of a a black swan event to some degree occurs, it, it sounds like, yes, there might be a rush of change or a rush of new information or new experiences. But at the end of the day, you felt that you were running a very disciplined operation and you felt like you could adjust, you know, as good as anyone because of these principles and values that have been tested over time. And then therefore, it sounds like, I guess what you're saying is you're able to catch up quickly from a remote standpoint or from a pandemic standpoint to learn how to connect with people or lead through this season. But the foundation of the structure itself has been built right. So you never had to worry about things being compromised from that standpoint. Is that a fair way to frame it? It is. And listen, at the end of the day, nothing's foolproof. And you just do the best you can. 
And that for us, it's, it's the discipline that, that you, you said even more correctly than I did. And also the focus on the right assets class and not being too many things to too many people. Focus on what you're good at. We know multifamily. That's what we've been doing forever. Um, and it's the most resilient. And in, you know, and when times are good, you want to expand, you want to grow, you look elsewhere. It's when times are bad that you learn. It's important to stay focused and stay true to what you're good at. Yeah. And y'all are the first institutional investor to launch your own crowdfunding platform. Is that correct? That is correct. We're the first crowdfunding company that exists that is backed by an institutional commercial real estate company, Arbor Realty Trust, that is a publicly traded mortgage REIT. They focus on uh, the debt side of the capital stack. We do the equity. We're separate companies, uh, but we share a lot of leadership and a tremendous amount of history and experience. So can you go back to 2016 or even, I guess, back to 2012 with the act that President Obama put into place? I'm just curious, what did you see then? And you know, I don't have the data in front of me, but I think maybe last year, 18 billion was done through crowdfunding platforms. And that's potentially supposed to hit 300 billion by 2030. So, I mean, I need some grace on the numbers, but to me, it was fascinating when I got, when I was digging into this before our time, going back to, I mean, obviously the launch 2016, but year two, three prior to that, very early, obviously, even to today, 2021, you're the only institutional investor, the way it was framed, that's, that's launched their own crowdfunding platform. So obviously, you're, you're making a very bold, aggressive move for the future. Can you talk through how you saw that or how you and your father saw that or what that looked like six, seven, eight years ago? It all came about with the Jobs Act. And the Jobs Act was signed into law in 2012 officially. And what that did was remove a, an historically old prohibition rule on general solicitation, meaning that in the past, prior to 2012, you couldn't go out and solicit people to investments. You had to have a Rolodex, that person had to be in your Rolodex or network um, in order for you to solicit them to make an investment. And all the Jobs Act did for this industry was remove that prohibition. And the, the key reason was that for the first time, there is the acknowledgement that people have personal devices, computers, they have the ability to make decisions, do research and, and gain information at their fingertips. And the prohibition was older, older and it was before that all existed. So crowdfunding as a concept spurred up really quickly during that time, not just real estate crowdfunding. You had Indiegogo, you had Kickstarter, you had rewards-based uh, rewards -based crowdfunding actually came later in real estate, but it was a very natural fit for real estate. And essentially, I was watching as this was happening and what was unfolding is an entirely new class of investors with access. And that's, that's the way the world's going. That is, and you, you said the numbers correctly, 18, roughly 18 billion. It's very hard to pinpoint because anyone can be a crowdfunding company. Technically, you can throw up a website and solicit money, whether you're doing so responsibly or rightfully wrong. So there's a lot out there, but the real players, and it's still hard to pinpoint because there's not companies that specialize in aggregating this data, but we generally accept the $18 billion number today tiny percentage of not only the commercial real estate volume that occurs in just a given year, 
but also of the untapped capital that exists within the investors that are capable of making these investments. So the important number to look at is the year-over-year growth and those projections that you're talking about of where the market's going to be. It's astronomical, and we are just scratching the surface. I mean, I think it uptick to like 18 19% year-over-year. Is that correct? That's correct. The last time I think I was... I the about a year and a half or two years ago, I think we were talking around like two to five billion was the projected range of what was being done that year. I guess the total amount through institutional real estate like this, I mean, it's several trillion, right? That's correct. So, I mean, that's the North Star, I guess, that you're referencing just a second ago. I mean, maybe not to that degree, but obviously there's a huge amount of runway here. There's an enormous amount of runway. And like I said, we're just scratching the surface on the investor side too. There are so many people who have the ability now to come in who don't even know. They're just learning about it. Crowdfunding is very new. It's very nation. And once that, that starts to be peeled off, the amount of inflow will be enormous. And people have the power to do so at their fingertips. What about for you personally? Because obviously, if you did this halfway, you probably wouldn't be any good at it or wouldn't care, it sounds like, to the degree that you do. So you're able you know, to, to invest a lot of time, a lot of energy years into this. What drew you into it personally you know, back to 2016 or a few years before that? So when the JOBS Act was, was signed into law, and, and, and it was really 2013, 14, the real estate company started doing it, I sat patiently and I watched. I recognize that people who jumped in right away are going to make some mistakes and have some corrections and learning. And that's exactly what happened. In 2015, you had the ability to do a reggae model and a lot of companies pivoted really quickly. Um, And that's a fun model uh, to non-accredited investors. And essentially, I watched that transformation happen. In 2016, I focused on building the company and the model and recognized that we wanted to operate in the traditional way prior to the reggae fund model coming into existence in 2015. And that was to do individual deals um, and present those individual deals, not raise the capital up front. And we had a unique ability to write the check for these deals um, and balance sheet them before we syndicate them out, taking away a lot of the risk and being able to present complete deals to our investors. So I really, we entered the space with our first deal. We launched our first deal in 2017. So that timeline, we were watching very closely. And the main draw was that there was a new class of investors and we are incredibly entrepreneurial and we recognize that the new class of investors are going to play an incredibly important role in the future and that it was just the beginning. And with this new class of investors, it felt natural that we would extend and build this company to tap into that market. What gave you the patience to spend those years watching and seeing how people that were first in were making mistakes? We haven't referenced those specifically. And I'll say this to, I guess, my question. I know you're personally big on education. You're big on information. Y'all are big on complete transparency. And there's a sense of professionalism or expertise that it seems that you bring, your company brings to the market through this crowdfunding platform in a very mysterious and ambiguous space where you're hindering your own growth to a certain degree, it seems, by trying to do things right and trying to play the long game to win. Uh, when for each person that's involved in the deal, but then also use the same type of due diligence and analysis and information that you have to use at an institutional level to bring that to the people. That's at least what it looks like from outside in. 
but I'm curious, maybe what kind of gave you the patience to kind of go slow getting into it and, and really try to do it the way that you thought would be best in the long term? It was difficult to sit and watch, but it was important. I knew that people were going to make mistakes, especially in the beginning. And I knew that some people were going to get it right. And I wanted to have the ability to watch that happen um, and see that unfold. And I wanted the right data to support my business model. And that was incredibly important to me. And we achieved that. And something that I say internally to, to my people and to many of our investors too, is I am looking to build a long-term, stable, successful company that in 30 years from now, I can look back and say to myself, we were built on fundamentals. I'm not trying to achieve a three to five year high valuation and get out of this business as quickly as I can on top. That's not what I'm looking to do. And it's important because that drives the entire business. It drives not only who we hire, how we hire, but every single deal we choose. We're not only putting our own capital on the lines for these deals because we take down the deal before we present it, but we also are, we want these deals to be successful. So we have to believe in them because we don't want blemishes on our track record. And that's long-term thinking. Yeah. If I can dig in there, your family has a long history in New York. You're right in the middle of New York you're running this platform, a new way to do real estate, but it sounds like pretty rooted in what success actually looks like and what it takes to truly succeed for decades. From an ego standpoint, how have you been able to kind of keep that in check? I, I think it comes down to the fact that we are putting our own capital on the line for each deal when we do it. Uh, so, better believe in that deal. Because if I don't raise the money, it's, um, I'm invested in it. Um, and that, that helps because you approach every deal with very thorough underwriting. You're not just playing with other people's money, you're playing with your own. And it means something more. And that is a differentiator that no one, nobody in this industry can say that they have. And it's something we tell our investors. And I don't even think our investors fully get it sometimes, but we are literally putting our money on the line in each deal before we syndicate it out. And if it doesn't syndicate out, we're in it. Um, so there's a lot of benefits to that. An alignment of interest is, is, is definitely one of them. The others is that there's no risk of the deal not going through. And the materials that we present to our investors are incredibly detailed because the deal's already gone to the table. So essentially, you know, numbers are changing. The financing is not changing. Everything's final. We're able to really dive in, present that information, um, and be there alongside them at that moment in time. So what you're saying is you're going to do these deals anyways when you believe in them and you see the right ones. And so, but you y'all have carved out space in these deals to help others experience wealth as well. So you're not doing anything. You're not putting your own money in. But at the same time, if y'all have made up your mind, you have the assets to do the deal. And this is just a way to bring. I mean, obviously, there's benefit. To, to you building this brand out, but you're bringing other people along with you. And so yeah. there's not that forced urgency there. Yeah. Now we are once the goal is to always syndicate out all of the capital and for us not to have remaining capital in the deals. But if the deal doesn't sell for whatever reason, that hasn't happened to us, but we are in it. And that's, that's the, that's the differentiating point. Obviously we don't have unlimited capital. So if we had $300 million outside and deals invested, it would 
we wouldn't continue to be able to go. But that is the selling point there. Gotcha. Has it been frustrating from your standpoint? You know, I saw, I think y'all looked at 500 and y'all did nine from a growth standpoint. And then seeing something like Zillow, you know, close that sector because of valuations not being right, overly aggressive, you know, others. And I'm not saying that in a negative way, but it seems like what y'all are trying to do is everything but that. Has that been frustrating from your standpoint where you feel you wish you were growing more? I'm not going to lie. It has been. And there are two reasons for why that's occurring. One or three, really. The first reason is that the market's incredibly competitive and there's a lot of capital. So competition is fierce. And when you have multiple people competing for deals, people are going to overpay. And it may matter to someone less than to someone else. To piggyback off that, number one is number two is that the crowdfunding space has a bloated presentation of IRRs. When you're going to websites and seeing high teens, 20 IRR projections for deals, that doesn't exist in today's market. You look at Blackstone's B-REIT, you know, they're, they're, they're raising $8 billion and they're doing so and their returns are anywhere from 8 to 12% maximum, maximum. And that's, that's more the norm. So the industry, number two, is hitting hard already on a competitive market. Number three is, I told you that I like earlier to build a long-term business. You can't be doing $100 million in your first month as a crowdfunding company or any new company because you need to build, you need to learn, you need to grow, you need to build your team, your support staff, your technology, all of those things. And I believe in growing steady and firmly. If I tried to do too much right all at once, I would, I would, I would end up in a bad place. So... Those are the three reasons that our deal flow has been very cautious and we wait for the right deal. We look for quality. We're aggressive. We have a lot of promise coming up. We have, we have five deals coming up in the first six months of next year alone. And that's just because we got in on a new asset class and, and that's, that's, that's coming down the pike hard and we're going to be really excited to present it when it's ready. Are there any people that you've looked up to and respected any case studies you've read or white papers or anything where you've really tried to envision in your head what the ramp up looked like, what the build out looked like, where you focused on that game versus getting caught up in other things that you referenced that, you know, would have created a lot of consequences. That's an easy answer for me. My father, Ivan Kaufman, he has built a, an incredible, incredible company, numerous companies. It's incredibly entrepreneurial in nature. Um, and I've had the privilege of growing up watching him do that with focus, with clarity and hard work um, and building with the right tempo. And I cannot be more gracious and thankful for having had that opportunity as a mentor um, and to be continually mentored by him um, in what I'm doing. And he's a pretty hands-off person um, in general. Um, and you just watch by his actions and you just learn a lot. And I've been fortunate. Family business sometimes can be messy, but it seems like your family's got a pretty neat thing going between another operation that your, your brother leads with what you're building here with Arbor Crow, And then obviously your father and the businesses that he has started. Sounds like, you know, sold, led, et cetera. Is there anything that you can speak to that you've learned from a family business standpoint that has gone really well, that's <laughs> kept you when I ask you something like that to where the first person you go through in a very sincere 
way was your father. The secret for us in, is that we have interlap and we have overlap, but in reality, it's not like we were just brought into the business and, and, and we shadow my dad. When we have ideas, uh, we can go to him. It's more formal. We can present to him. And if he believes in it, he will back it. And, you know, there was a, a natural right for me to try to incorporate Arbor into Arbor Crowd so that I can have the market presence and knowledge from the actual sponsorship and brand name recognition on the investor side too were applicable. So there was benefits there, but it is a separate company. We're in different offices at each day, which is nice. I'm down on 25th Street. He's up in Midtown. And we, uh, we, we have overlap, but it's, it's not daily. It's not, it's not nearly as regular as you would think. Um, and I think that, that's, that's important. It's important to have strong ideas um, and, and, and get buy-in and, and have enough separation, but uh, also get the actual knowledge, share, and exposure. Yeah. That's neat. So it sounds like what you're saying is you're held, you're responsible. You've been in an environment in an atmosphere where you've always been learned and challenged, but at the end of the day, you've been encouraged to think for yourself. And when you see opportunities and you present those and they make sense, you're going to get support to go for it. But then at the same time, you're expected to run and to build things at the highest level possible. So there's a sense of support encouragement and learning from someone else. But then at the same time, you're on your own to build what you see and to take these risks and to learn these lessons, but to really go for success on your own terms. Is that right? Very much so. And if I have, if there's something I, I want to talk out, I have the luxury and the benefit to pick up the phone and, 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 and call him and, and, and get his thoughts on it. And that's, that's irreplaceable. Hey, everybody. We're going to take a quick pause here from the show and hear a word from one of our sponsors. After that, we'll get back to the show. Do you want to make efficient use with your time? Now more than ever, traveling hassle-free is harder to find. AB Jets is one of the safest private air companies in the world with impeccable service with nonstop access to most destinations around the USA. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. Bypass the hassle and get an AB Jets jet card that gets you 10 or 25 hour flight options that makes your experience hassle-free. AB Jets carries up to eight passengers and is one of the largest Lear 60 operators in the US. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S, to travel on your own terms. This podcast is also sponsored by My Story. Have you ever thought about what if you could have your own audio and video interview for someone you love to keep and share for generations to come? What better way to keep and remember the life and story of someone you love than your loved one's own interview in their own voice? This is the perfect way to make sure your loved one's story stays with their descendants for future generations to come. Go to mystorytold.org to learn more. Again, that's mystorytold.org to learn more. Now we're going to get back to the show. The thing that's fascinating to me that I just that I was interested in in the very beginning, it's just a very specific effort 
to bring wealth and opportunity to people, you know, that wouldn't have had that. And, and so I guess if you think about your investors that have done repeated deals with you or the, the type of investors that you're targeting, you know, over the next one, two, three decades moving into the future, who are those people and what kind of benefit can Arbor Crowd play into their lifestyle? Yeah, it's the people who are looking to diversify their portfolios and include real estate. And I highly encourage that into their in, into their investment mix. And people who traditionally, you know, go through a middleman now have direct access at their fingertips to, you know, come to our platform, analyze deals, and you don't have to be an expert. Um, and we're here to answer questions and choose the deals that they want to invest in and diversify. And I think that you know, there's a lot out there in the space about democratizing, you know, commercial real estate investing to everyone. I am hesitant to say everyone. I think that at the end of the day, when talking to people, it's nice if they have investment experience. If you're on the phone with somebody and the only thing that they own are is Nike stock and Apple stock, and they got it as a gift when they got married, maybe by someone, right? I'm not I'm a little concerned to be serving them advertisements to invest in commercial real estate and taking their money because I want to make sure that they are active in their investments and you know can understand it in the right way to make the investments because that's where you end up with an issue if things go wrong in a deal. So it's important for me that we do democratize commercial real estate investment for those who are interested um, and we don't mislead them. We don't draw people in who otherwise wouldn't come in on their own. Those are incredibly important things. What was it like to position this to where the addressable market or the people that you're reaching, they're not, you know, they're not institutions, you know, they're individuals and in we're in a globalized society from an education standpoint, from a messaging standpoint, what did you feel like you had to get right from the start and has that changed? You're definitely nailing our pain points. Um, and something we talk about regularly, we actually, uh, we, uh, I was in the office the other day for the first time in a very long time, and I got together with um, my general counsel and uh, my head of technology and digital engagement. And we were sitting in the room and we were talking about how to broaden our messaging to have more reach and understandability. And it's a struggle because, you know, you have a lot of people coming in with varying backgrounds and understanding of commercial real estate, some with none whatsoever. Some, to my surprise, who work in the industry, who don't have the opportunity to invest with the principles of their funds and access to other, uh, other types of investments um, and are doing it through us because they trust us and they know us in the industry. Very surprised by that fact, but it's tough. And what we've relied on over the years is really saying to ourselves, what is our identity? Who are we? If we can figure out ourselves and talk that way, then people will understand. And instead of trying to be everything to everyone and talk to people the way we think they need to be talked to, we said, you know what? We are a real estate company. We're not a technology company, as a lot of other competitors identify themselves. We are a real estate company. We put our product first and we're, an we're backed by an institution and we're institutional minded. So we present that way. And we present the information. We're not advisors. So we have, we're not investment advisors. We present the facts. And to us, it was important that we were straightforward. We presented with the confidence of who we were. And if investors or people had questions, we are 
always here to talk to you directly and you're not going to get some random lower level sales service rep who will give you their written answers that they've bulleted out by management and never get up the chain. You will talk to, if you want to, our asset manager, our acquisitions person. We all get on the phone, anybody there. And it's incredibly important. And that's our motto. And that's what we feel comfortable doing. And ultimately, our investors feel comfortable with us. What was it like building a platform from scratch? From the technology side or from the company as a whole? It's a great question. Back to me. I'd say start with the technology side. From the technology side, we had an interesting approach too. sort of the same approach that we had to build in the business when we first got into the market. We white labeled a platform of software prior to building our own so that we could get off the ground with the products. We had it and the investor interest was there and learn from our own experience with the platform what we ultimately wanted to build. And that was incredibly important. If you asked me before, we built the platform in-house um, in the very beginning, the onset of COVID. Um, when the whole market froze, we said to ourselves, we're not stopping as a company. We will be here and we will f- survive this no matter what happens. Let's focus on within. Let's build our technology now. And that's exactly what we did in the first six months of COVID. So it was the same approach I took to the company. I watched as other people did it. I got my hands dirty. I did my, had my own experience. I had the product there. We learned from our investors what they liked and didn't like. We built the platform that fit our business model. And it continues to evolve and grow. As anyone knows, even if you have a marketing website and, and not a platform behind it, that needs to evolve. That needs to grow over time. Nothing, it's not a single investment, it's a continuing investment. So we continue to do that. And it was an incredible experience to be able to do that in COVID. Going back to what you were saying a minute ago, it sounds like people that underwrite deals, people that do deals, that analyze deals, they see the value in what you're doing because they know how things work and they know what happens when things are not underwritten correctly. So you're able to take these processes, again, of decades of experience, and you're able to fully put that out into the marketplace. And so there, it sounds like it takes some level of sophistication from the investor's standpoint to actually understand what they're getting into and what the turn is, et cetera. And so since you kind of build that process out in the open, those are the people that get it the most are those people that are in the throes of that day in, day out. Is that a fair reflection on what you said? Yes and no. I think if people understand when they come to our platform that we invest in the deal upfront before we syndicate out, we take on that risk. That in and of itself, for example, is a selling point that you can understand the depths and nuances to what that means or not at all, but you can buy in on that concept alone. And you can say, oh, wow, they're a real estate institution that's backed, you know, that shares leadership of the public company. And there's a lot of strong experience there. And they're putting their own money on the line. I trust them. There's other guys that can come in and say, I want to know every nook and cranny of the deal. I'm going to read all the offering materials. I'm going to call you for an hour a day for seven days before I make this investment. Um, And they can get as deep as they want to um, because we present the information very much so and transparently so. So it really, it really doesn't matter. It, it really is a varying degree. And it's also looking and saying, what do I want to change in my portfolio? Do I want a value add or deal in my portfolio? Do I want something more stabilized with cash flow? Am I looking to take on more risk and get into a development? Those are things that people can ask themselves. And those are things we don't advise on, but we can certainly explain the differences in the deals that we present. And then from a technology standpoint, you were saying y'all white labeled a product early on to test it and to essentially get it to market in a safe way. And then after 
you know, spending a few years of analyzing, testing, you know, doing this work, then you're able to custom build everything out. And, and that was a very efficient way to do it and a wise way to do it from your standpoint versus coming in before you really knew what was going on. Is that correct? Yeah, I was 25 years old at the time and I was starting a company and I was focused on the product. And if you're going to ask me to ramp up and be an expert on overseeing the build out of our technology on day one, I would have been frank and said, I, I need some time to, to feel confident in my ability to do that. And I had the opportunity with the product to white label a platform, get the company going, and then take on the learning to oversee the build out and feel responsible about it. I hear you. I mean, do you ever see the model flipping a predominant amount of the deals that you do 20, 30 years from now being through crowdfunding as far as the capital raises that you're doing? You were, I think there will be institutional adoption. You're already seeing that with Blackstone and the BRE concept. It's not exactly crowdfunding in the way we're doing it, but you're already starting to see that because the power of the individual investor is so great. So I do think it will be strong. Um, but you always have institutional monies too. You'll always have, you know, also different pension funds. You'll have different private equity companies. You'll have institutional capital um, and, and, and very wealthy people who give to the private equity companies. It'll be there. So I think it'll, the individual investor will play a much larger role in that. And listen, I think in the pandemic, we've not connected, but the power of the individual investor came out with the meme stocks and, and, and whatnot and what it did to GameStop. Now, again, I think that's, that's in the security space, it's very different. And I would call it gambling. Real estate would not call gambling, um, especially what we do um, in terms of multifamily and, and, and the assets being there. But there's a power there and there's something to be said. So we were talking, you were talking about Blackstone, but essentially what you're saying, y'all are just super early. And the way this will work through these banking institutions one day, or the way it's already existing for people that you know, have assets there, you're going to get these crowdfunding options through the institutions that you use to then allocate it similar to the way that you're doing it within your own network already or your own clients that you're reaching. I don't think it will look exactly like the way we're doing it. We're offering individual deals in Blackstone's. What they're doing and they call it the B-Read is they're getting allocations to a fund and then they're going out and buying real estate with that money. With us, you get to choose your individual deals that you want to invest in and you get to really be a partner in them and go on into our community and be a part of that experience. Blackstone, you're buying in, you're buying in with everyone else. They're going, they're allocating across different deals that they select. Um, and then you're getting a, a report on it at the end of the day. For us, it's, it's more the direct ownership play, individual selection, and really that diversification play, not just in real estate, but within the business plans, within the real estate. And that's the nuance here. And, and, and people really love the power to choose. And I will not underestimate it. It's funny, actually. What I often, and I, and I speak at... Uh, a couple of MBA programs in the country about crowdfunding to the real estate classes. And the story that I always start out with that many people don't recognize that the first crowdfunding project on record is actually the base of the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> Pulitzer went uh, to the New York world at that time, a newspaper, and said, we need the equivalent today of $60 million to create the base of the Statue of Liberty. Otherwise, it's going to sit here in the Hudson. And within days, he had reached that money 
because he offered something very simple in return to people. They will have their name inscribed on the base of the Statue of Liberty. And it's true, their names are inscribed. People want ownership. They love to say they own something and they're a part of it. And that's the first history. And that's the same today, that same feeling. That's a great story. So what do you want and what do you see? What are you building for? Um, I like to build things. <laughs> um, so I, I like that a lot. I, I love the idea that there is this new class of investors. It's a very dated industry. So it's fun to introduce technology into a very dated space. It's fun to introduce access, knowing that, you know, you're really pushing something that really didn't exist before. I love that feeling. And then personally, I love operationally building things. So I love building out my team. I love the management aspect. And I love that I get to focus on so many different verticals each day. You know, I have marketing, investor relations, asset management, acquisitions, legaling and structuring, which is huge, and, and, and technology. So I love that I get to have the experience and breadth across that all while bringing in an entirely new investment, investor class. So with the continued growth of what you're building, you're also going to need more deals. What's that like? Because that's, it seems like there's teamwork there. How are y'all building it on that side? So we became heavily focused on the single family rental, built to rent space that blew up during COVID. And we have 30 million of capital committed to deals in the next, like I said, six months alone. So our deal flow is, is, is there. That was an opportunity right after we built the platform. I turned my attention to as an asset class very quickly. And we we're very fortunate to find good deals and good partners. And like I said, we have a lot of money allocated that we are prepared to syndicate out in the new year. So I guess Arbor has a history of r running diversified businesses that are very focused on what they do, but that diversification helps its overall performance. And it sounds that there's a continuous effort to look for new opportunities into new markets. So I guess what we're saying here is you're proving it through Arbor Crowd now, but as things continue to grow and evolve, you're going to be able to take these principles and these systems that you're building and carry those to any new market or opportunities that you see. And you're, you're going to be able to ramp up those spaces in a very efficient way, as long as you all feel comfortable enough to put your own money into those deals and to underwrite them the way that would discipline the way that you always have. Is that a fair observation? I'll make one nuance, but important distinction. Ivan Kaufman, my father, has a tremendous ability to run different businesses and, and have ideas and do different things. And some of them are related and some of them have nothing to do with each other. We are independent of the publicly traded company. We don't drive their bottom line or their stock price. So while we share a name and there's, you know, we can go into the history of that, but it's a little bit boring, but we share a name for the marketplace. We don't drive anything on the REIT side whatsoever. Um, the synergies are in our leadership um, and in our blood. But pretty much everything we're talking about here is multifamily, right? Yes, no, you're right. It is multifamily. They are, what we've noticed during the pandemic, what everybody's really desired is that home prices have gone up. The average home prices have soared affordability is getting difficult and people want the same amenities, especially with an aging millennial demographic of a single family home, but they don't want to own it. 
they don't want to put the down payment down. They don't want to be tied up. They don't want to be tied up in a specific area either. And they can't afford, they can't afford a home, but they want a backyard. They want more space. Um, so what's being done right now is there's a tremendous amount of focus on building homes that, uh, that share a lot. I'm not focused on scattered sites. They're, they're single, single sites building, let's just say anywhere from like 60 to 300 homes, depending on the site that you can get in markets where they are usually detached structures. So they're not connected. The markets we're focused on. Um, and they have a clubhouse uh, leasing center. Um, all the units are for rent. And um, they have, you know, amenities like a gym or a pool, depending on the market or the, the business plan there too. And people are just renting. They're not owning, but they get all the amenities and they get the, the, the ability to have space. I hear you. Earlier in the conversation, you referenced mistakes that you're able to watch. What are some of the biggest mistakes that you saw that if you take the predator principle on that? Unfortunately, I think a lot of them are still occurring today, but you have a lot of companies that identified as technology companies, a lot of people who pumped millions into building out their technology that in order for their company to ever be profitable, they have to go on years and years and achieve incredible volume. And I saw a lot of people try to be everything to everyone. They focus on many different asset classes. They identified as technology companies. They touted a lot of expertise that is not there. And self-admittedly, they, they, they say that often. And it's difficult. And as somebody who's grown up in the industry, I recognize I can't be an expert in every asset class, let alone if I'm a new company identifying as a technology company, crowdfunding to investors who might never have been in a real estate project before in their life. It's difficult. And those deals, you've, you've seen a lot of companies go out of business and fail. And I think it's an expensive business to be in. Um, like I said, there's a lot of verticals and a lot of costs. So it's, it's, I've watched people come and go. Um, and I, I think there's just a handful of people doing it right. And I think there'll continue to be consolidation in the industry and learning. But I, I watched that happen. And, and, I, and like I said earlier, I, I saw people adopt to a model, this reggae model, which gives a lot of opportunity. But I, I, didn't, I didn't do that. I stuck to the original model. Um, and I, I probably, if I was in the space earlier, I would have tried that model just to set, uh, suss it out. Um, and I'm happy I didn't. Yeah. And what was the model you said? It's a fund model. So basically it's, it's a reg A plus. It's essentially the ability to raise up to $50 million in an offering um, to non-accredited investors. So there's some of them. But where you, it's mystery on what the deal is, or there's no deal that's been underwritten before where y'all start with full transparency and disclosure from the start. Exactly. You're looking at a tear sheet that somebody maybe got to from a Google advertisement that said invest in real estate. Yeah, I hear you. Is there anything that's been harder than what you expected? I think that finding good deals when there's so much capital, where just where we are in the cycle of real estate was more difficult because when I first started, my focus was on value-add deals. It's very hard to find a quality value-add deal in today's market. So really how things change and evolve, I, um, I thought was... Uh, different and more difficult, but I'm fortunate now that we have uh, a good product stream on the single family rental side. Is there anything that's gone better than maybe, or happened faster than what you anticipated? Yes. I have a great team that has built up with people that I've, I, I, I can trust and rely on, which I think I could never have anticipated and understood how the, that feeling um, and they're very motivated and I'm very fortunate and, 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 and pleased. Do you think the average investor appreciates kind of the opportunity that they're given by these walls that have been broken down 
to get looks at these deals that have been scrutinized and examined to the highest possible level that previously didn't exist? I, I think many of our investors have because we've had deals that have been realized and successfully realized at that. And I think something that we also uniquely position ourselves as is that we asset manage the deal. So our, our relationship with the investors doesn't stop once they've invested, it actually just starts. And what that does, and it backs with our real estate experiences, we had a deal where the just a year into our investment, the sponsor of the deal had substantially changed his outlook and business plan for the deal. And we got to the table with flexing our asset management expertise and said, the direction that you're taking this deal is not what we bought in at and, and, and sold to our investors. And I think it makes sense for us to go separate ways. And we were able within a year, 15 months, it was a year when it's, the conversation started at 15 months, we negotiated a successful exit and our investors, we gave them all their money back. And uh, that's something that a lot of people couldn't do and couldn't bring to the table. And we're really, really happy about that. And I think our investors see that and they, and they respect it. And you're the only crowdfunding in real estate in addition from an institutional standpoint, but also that actually manages the asset. Is that correct? A little bit nuanced there. It's that we have the experience to really go to the table and have the conversations with the sponsors. Um, but crowdfunding generally is pretty passive in nature. Right. There's not a lot of in-depth or there's not a lot of experience management that's actually tracking the investment day in, day out. It's, they, they don't really know what's going on. Yeah, they varying degrees. And it's the ability to have had the experience to know how to get to the table and have had the relationships to, to have those difficult conversations, but to understand what's happening to even have that conversation. So it's important. And generally, we look for strong sponsors. We look for strong partners who run the day to day. You know, we're the, we're the capital raisers. Yeah. So in this new age, kind of going back there, to get adoption in this market, you're very clear about trust. You're very clear about experience. You're very clear about the history of decades of performance. What have you learned that you have to get right to take a concept like this, even that it's successful and you can see that right in front of your face, but to get adoption to a globalized world? You, you said it great, patience. Start slow and steady because like I said, it, I, I'm trying to be built on fundamentals and I look at each building block as an important one. And you start off with one deal, then another, then another, and one deal does well, then another one does well if you pick right, and so on. And next thing you know, you have a bunch under your belt and opportunities flowing in. So you couldn't really hire anybody or partner with anybody on this that wanted to get rich quick because it's just not going to happen. Yeah, it's not our it's not our motto, and it's not our motto at all. And I think there are certain deals that you know have more risk, certain are more cash flowing. But in general, you know, we look at deals with a three to five year horizon. Let's say this projection by twenty thirty is somewhat accurate, and crowdfunding market has gone to three hundred billion. How do y'all fit into that? What do you see that would look like? I think that we will be playing a large role in that. I think that we will be doing it responsibly. There's enough room in this market for every player to really be present. Um, it's just about having a good name and doing so responsibly. And I think, unfortunately, my fear right now is that those who we've only existed in an upcycle as an industry. So when things do go bad, there will be some uh, revelation of bad actors and 
We haven't seen that to the degree yet. There's been companies that have done things wrong and have gone out of business, but not to the degree that I think a downturn will show. Um, so I, I, I think we'll have to weather that storm as an industry and take the black eye and continue. But I ultimately think that we will be uh, we will be known as one of the responsible ones and 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 one that you know is building steadily and strongly and 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 picking good deals. Hopefully, I've got a lot of respect for you. I got a lot of respect for what you're building. It's fascinating to me through crowdfunding, just the opportunity that is brought to people in a globalized way. It's been impressive hearing you kind of just unpacking the narrative on the due diligence, on the expertise, on the fundamentals to actually know where your money's going and how the deal is valued. And so this has been a lot of fun. I uh, hope to see you again and just appreciate uh, you coming on and explaining this. And you know, for people listening to this, I hope they will legitimately look in to what you're building and be curious about the opportunity and be curious about this new age that we're living in and all this opportunity that we're getting. Appreciate you going into detail on it. Thank you for having me. It was it was great to be able to meet and talk with you. And I hope we get to do it again sometime soon. Thanks, man. Rooting for you. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Since you've made it this far in the show, I wanted to share with you something that you may love. A few months ago, I was asked to interview a close friend's grandmother who's in her 90s. She lives outside of the United States, and this is a way to get to the heart of her and capture her life in a way that could stay with the family for generations to come. This interview was an absolute blast, and it brought tremendous joy and value to this family. Since then, I started doing this for others. If you have someone you love or know of someone whose story and life you'd love to capture in an interview, go to mystorytold.org to learn more. My team and I would love to discuss this with you further. Finally, thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Driven By Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review. Please subscribe to the show. And you can follow me on social, on Twitter and Instagram to join me for future episodes of the Driven By Podcast. Hope you have a great week and see you next time.